Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 11th, 2022. There's good and bad news out there, particularly, I think, for progressives. The bad news is that there are very dark storm clouds on the horizon for the world economy. The worst is yet to come, according to the IMF. Uh, many bankers, um, both public and private, are suggesting that America even is on the verge of recession. Um, Martin Wolf, the very prescient economics writer on the Financial Times, is suggesting that disease and war are now shaping our economy. Um, we're living in a post neoliberal age, according to another New York, uh, another FT uh, columnist, Rana Faruha. Uh, and there are new rules for business. Maybe those rules are tighter than under neoliberalism. Uh, but this is, it seems to me, inspiring or triggering a debate on the left amongst progressives. Bernie Sanders had an interesting piece in the Guardian today suggesting that it's a mistake just to focus in the upcoming elections uh, on abortion, on cultural issues. Um, some Democrats, though, remain unconvinced about the economic populism that the coming recession perhaps offers. There's uh, a piece in Politico about how a number of Democrats um, are on the Fed side in terms of raising inflation, which, of course, is not good news for uh, many working class people. Uh, there's an interesting debate brewing about whether the right or the left do populism properly. In the Trump age, a lot of people thought that the conservatives were good at populism, but more and more people are beginning to recognize that maybe the left does populism right. And even old Joe Biden, who many people wrote off, seems to um, have fallen into the zeitgeist. His stuff on student debt relief is... Um, becoming more and more popular, and his Inflation Reduction Act, even if it's improperly uh, defined or worded, uh, seems to have struck a populist nerve. All this is particularly relevant in the context of my guest today. Michael Tomaski is one of America's leading progressive journalists. He's the editor of The New Republic uh, and also of the quarterly journal Democracy. He has a new book out. The Middle Out, The Rise of Progressive Economics and a Return to Shared Prosperity. Michael is joining us from uh, Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, Michael, good or bad news, uh, all these dark clouds on the horizon from the point of view of progressives? Uh, <clears throat> bad news in the most obvious way. And by the way, thanks for having me on, Andrew. I appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, if there's a recession uh, while there's a Democratic president, I don't think any liberal or progressive person particularly wants to see that. Then you start to think about the timing of it. And, you know, will it abate by late 2023 and be gone by 2024 and the economy turned around? But you hate to have to even play those kinds of games. Uh, so, you know, but it, 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 you know, the experts who know more than I about this sort of thing seem to think that we're headed into a rough patch that there's kind of no way out of it. But, you know, hopefully uh, by 2024, uh, inflation will have abated and the recession will be gone. 
you wear your politics on your sleeve. Um, I assume you're in the Sanders camp in terms of focusing on economics in the upcoming election rather than just cultural issues. Do you share Bernie's focus on, on, on thinking more broadly in economic terms in, in, in the context of the upcoming election? Uh, not quite, actually. I mean, I, you know, well, first of all, <clears throat> I don't know of any candidate who is talking only about abortion. I think candidates out there are talking about all kinds of different things. But I really do think that after Dobbs, I think that uh, protecting abortion rights or trying to restore abortion rights uh, has to be central. I think it has to be the driving Democratic message. And I suspect that the Democrats only hope, let's put it that way, the Democrats only hope is that there's a big army of angry voters out there uh, who are furious about Dobbs and want to come out to the polls for that reason. Now, having said that, yes, the Democrats do have to make their economic case. And uh, you pointed to some of the things in your introduction that they do have a case to make. And uh, you know, unemployment is low, wages are up, gro growth is good. Uh, we're back to pre-pandemic levels of employment. All this, of course, I understand, I'm not naive, all this is made much more difficult to sell by 8% inflation. Uh, but, you know, the Democrats have to try to sell what they have. And what about Joe Biden all this? Is he some sort of accidental figure who's wandered in to the, the, the stage of world politics? Or do you actually think he knows what he's doing? I know you're a little bit probably more positive about Biden than, than, than many others. I'd give him a little more credit than that, sure, because I think we heard him starting to talk this way in the campaign after the pandemic, and my book tracks this. And in addition to that, I mean, I, just to talk about the book for a second, it, it tracks efforts on the broad left among liberals and progressives in economics, in politics, and in the academic and think tank and foundation worlds. Uh, to try ever since the Great Recession to find a new economic path forward for this country. It involves some of the things Sanders said in his campaigns. It involves some of the things Elizabeth Warren said, and it involves some of the things that Joe Biden came to embrace in his campaign. If people will remember, in 2019, when he first announced his candidacy, his essential message was, if we can just get back to the way things were before Trump came along, we'll be okay. Then the pandemic hit, and that's when he took up the phrase build back better. And people can think of that phrase what they wish to think of it, but it's very clear what he meant by that phrase. He meant we need to build back, but even uh, uh, more aggressively than uh, the Democrats had been doing under Barack Obama. And it, he would probably also extend it back to Bill Clinton. So he started talking a lot about how this is a New Deal kind of moment. We face that big a challenge now, and we have to rise to the occasion in that big a way. So he did do a lot of that stuff. The American Rescue Plan, $2 trillion, uh, and the infrastructure bill, and, and some of the other more recent bills that have been passed, the Chips and Science Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. He failed, of course, with the Build Back Better bill, the $3.5 trillion bill, or 2.5, whatever. I guess that's, that was more like the size that the House actually passed. Uh, but yeah, he's he's more than accidental, Andrew. He he embraced this kind of paradigm shifting economic um, um, uh, priorities. 
wonder how you read history, Michael. Uh, you talked about going back, in a sense, to the New Deal and FDR. But even FDR wasn't really FDR. We did a show with the, the journalist Jonathan Darman a few weeks ago, an interesting new book out, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. I'm not sure what will come out about Biden, but he seems, like most figures in politics, to stumble around. What's your theory of history? Are politicians able to get above the clatter, the noise, the smoke, and make sense of things in a grand historical sense? Yeah. I mean, look, everybody is a ball of contradictions uh, and everybody is is imperfect and, and, and seized by political imperatives and, and so on and so on. And Franklin Roosevelt certainly was. And, you know, there were he had aides well to his left pushing him to go farther than he did. Uh, and he refused to do it. And then after he won. In 1936, his first re-election, running a pretty populist campaign, he pivoted to deficit reduction. <clears throat> and the New Deal for a time, for a short time, was, was, was largely forgotten. So, you know, and then he did a court packing thing, which was uh, everybody thinks was an error. So, you know, these people aren't perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. But if you accomplish four or five big things, that's what you're going to be remembered for. And he accomplished at least four or five big things. And LBJ accomplished three or four really big things. And I think Joe Biden has accomplished, you know, two or three big things. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty good record. So you would include Biden in the FDR, LBJ, Great Society, New Deal conversation. Clearly, your book believes that, that we're in, a, in an odd way returning uh, to... Uh, a New Deal, Great Society world. We did a show, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, Gary Gerstel, yeah. great scholar on neoliberalism. Um, he has a, a really interesting new book out, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. I think everyone acknowledges that it's risen and fallen. The question then becomes, what comes next? Yeah. Are you <laughs> saying, uh, Michael, that we can return to the New Deal, that we can return to great society, that can go back to the 60s or the 30s? Or is history more complicated than that? Yeah, history is more complicated. And, you know, my book traces the, the rise and fall of neoliberalism as well from the 1940s <clears throat> up through the uh, era right after the Great Recession. Uh, First of all, in some sense, Andrew, we have to do better than the New Deal and the Great Society because one problem with both of those programs, the New Deal in particular, was that it wasn't inclusive. It didn't include women. It didn't include black people. Other people of color did not live in the United States in large numbers right. at that time. <clears throat> but it, it, was, uh, it was a white male project. And so, you know, to the extent that that was the case, we, we have to do better. And, and one of the arguments that I make in my book that many new economists make is that this idea that there's some kind of trade-off between inclusivity and growth or between economic equality and growth is really false and pernicious. Inclusivity helps growth and reducing inequality helps growth. The neoliberals, the free market conservatives would never concede this point in a jillion years. <clears throat> and 
our political discourse hasn't really accepted this point yet, but all the evidence says it's true and Democrats have to start saying that. So that's one thing. We actually have to do better than the New Deal. Now, is Biden on a footing with those two? Well, no, not yet. Uh, you know, you have to serve more. You have to get yourself reelected. You have to serve more than one term. You you have to you have to get more things done than he has gotten done. But <clears throat> I guess what I would say is that in terms of what his stated priorities are and his uh, framework for what he's trying to do economically, he more resembles those two presidents uh, than most other Democrats I can think of. Your book comes with a very enthusiastic blurb from the great Heather McGee. Uh, she describes it as engrossing, engrossing and incisive. Um, McGee was on the show uh, a few months ago um, talking about then her new book, um, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. What McGee seems to be suggesting is that we need the role of the state. What's your position on this, uh, Michael, in terms of rebuilding the state? If we're to get beyond neoliberalism, if we're to build an America in a post-neoliberal age, do we need to rebuild the American state? Uh, yeah, we do. And, and we need to rebuild faith in it. And I actually depart a bit from the conventional wisdom uh, that, that you spoke of a few moments ago when you said everybody agrees that neo, the neoliberal order is over. I don't really agree with that. I think if a Republican is elected president again, we're, we're basically going to be right back to tax cuts and, and deregulation and the whole rest of the thing. Donald Trump departed from neoliberalism here and there on uh, trade. Uh, but his trade policies didn't really amount to a lot. And his tax policy was strictly neoliberal, uh, just cut taxes on the rich. So I'm not sure we're beyond it. But having said that, you know, I, I do think that uh, you know, Democrats are, are building an alternative vision uh, and they are, building, uh, they are building it around more faith in government. And, and trying to get the government to do more. I mean, that's what Build Back Better was about, right? I mean, you had, you know, uh, child care subsidies, uh, paid family leave, free community college. Uh, all these things were are government uh, uh, benefits, benefices granted uh, to middle class and working class and poor people. Uh, it's going to take a long time, though, to rebuild people's faith in government because we've had 40 years in this country of the right saying government is bad, government is the problem, government can't do anything for you, and uh, of Democrats uh, sometimes agreeing, but at, at the very least not offering much more than a tepid defense of government. And that's something that needs to change. I mentioned earlier Rana Faruha's uh, piece about the new rules for business in a post-neoliberal age. I wonder whether business is rethinking itself. We've done a number of shows on how to make American capitalism moral. Dob Seidman is a leading thinker here. Alan yes. Murray, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Yeah. How does the left counter that social capitalist argument? Does it need to take it on head on? Uh, should it take this argument seriously? The idea that capitalism can simply be rebuilt as being in a post neoliberal age, more moral, better, and that uh, it can 
include women, it include African-Americans, it can redistribute wealth. And that the real moral core now of America, according to, I think, people like Murray, is American business. Well, yeah, you know, business has to see uh, that things like inclusivity uh, and, and things like uh, making sure that you have a robust and safe and secure middle class are better for them. Uh, <clears throat> they're better for them because it gives them more customers who can spend more money and, and, and drive more business activity. And it's also better for them, Andrew, because it's better for democracy. Democracy is at risk when the middle class falls apart, when there's a ton of economic anxiety. That's what explains Trump. That's what explains people taking a flyer on Donald Trump in 2016. It's what explains the rise of other demagogues throughout history. You know who I mean. I don't have to name names. No. <laughs> uh, those are the only times those kinds of right-wing demagogues catch fire and, and people decide to cast their fate with them. When there is economic security, when people feel safe, when people feel that you know, uh, they can't be broken by a, an unexpected $300 expense or what have you, then the demagogues don't have a chance. Then democracy is secure. Business people need to recognize this central fact. And they don't want an environment where democracy is not secure. That, that can't be good for their bottom line in the long run. It just can't be. There are a lot of businesses that are, that are doing things. You know, there, there are businesses, many businesses that have raised minimum wage of their own volition up to as much as $20 an hour right now. Uh, so there are signs uh, and there are signs that, that some corporations are seriously questioning the wisdom of the Friedman Doctrine. Milton Friedman, 1970, that corporations' only responsibility is to their shareholders. Uh, many corporations are, are moving away from that now. It's, this is a slow process that's going to take time, uh, but it is underway. But it's, I mean, from, I don't want to put words into your mouth, and I don't suppose you'd let me, but um, <laughs> uh, I mean, from the point of view of progressives, it's, it's worrying if the Republican Party moved away from Trumpism and became the party of a, a, a progressive capitalism, isn't it? Yeah, sure. And there's some of that going on. Um, there are efforts. I'm sure you're familiar with them. You know, Orrin Cass's uh, group and, and some others that, that are trying to say to their fellow conservatives, uh, we need to take middle class economic anxiety more seriously than they do, uh, than we do. This is them talking amongst themselves. Now, I don't see those people having a much of a foothold in the Republican Party right now. So, you know, of the list of things that keep me up at night, this doesn't rank very high. Uh, but, you know, I could see it getting to the point with the right leader, with the right, you know, uh, presidential candidate, uh, where the Republican Party does, in some sense, redefine itself as not being just about tax cuts for the rich. But I think that day is still a pretty long way off. You mentioned um, you, you you mentioned uh, Michael the end of neoliberalism or maybe not the end of neoliberalism, uh, but you mentioned the new wisdom of economists. Uh, we've had a number of them on the show. I'm sure again you're familiar with the work of 
Brad DeLong, and you probably cite him in, in some of your work. Oh, sure. Uh, as well as Gabriel Zuckman, a kind of younger version uh, of, uh, who was also on the show, a younger version of Piketty. Yeah. Um, but can economics really change with globalization? How do you deal with globalization in this new economic reality? And, and which economists in particular have you picked out uh, in your book, The Middle Out, who are articulating in a coherent way this, this new economic reality? Yeah, globalization is, uh, you know, a massive challenge. And it's, it's, it's one of the reasons that things can't be exactly like they were in the 1930s and 1960s. And, and it's had a tremendous impact on the American economy in a million ways. Um, <clears throat> there are ways to think about how to rein in you know, unchecked globalization and and this minimum tax that that Janet Yellen is trying to get across, uh, that corporations would have to pay fifteen percent and and you know would have to repatriate some of their money to their uh, original country and so on and so forth. These are ideas that you know Zuckman actually has been on that for a long time. Uh, so there are ideas to try and you know mitigate globalization, but you know you can't you you have to accept it to some extent, as some kind of reality. Uh, I cite Piketty, Saez, Zuckman in the book uh, as very important. And Saez um, and Zuckman both teach at UC Berkeley. Piketty, of course, is based in France. Correct. Uh, Mariana Mazzucato is a very interesting Yeah, she's been on I know her. She's been on the show, too, an interesting yeah. woman. Yeah, and her main brief in two books that she wrote in the last several years is to tell people that it's not just the private sector that creates wealth and that innovates. Uh, the public sector also, over the years, the evidence shows, has innovated and has created wealth. And she demonstrates these in two books. Uh, and I think it's a very important argument for people to understand, uh, and for democratic office holders to understand too. Uh, Heather Boucher uh, uh, on uh, Biden's uh, Council of Economic Advisors is a, another, I think, really super important voice uh, among this cohort of young economists. Uh, a number of people at Cal Berkeley. Brad is there. Brad DeLong. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, Jesse Rothstein is there. Um, uh, there are a lot of people I name in the book, and um, it's a it's been an exciting time in the economics profession in the last 15 or so years. But aren't they sort of preaching to the converted in the sense that everyone's agreeing with everyone? I mean, what do you think of modern monetary theory, for example? Uh, you know, it's complicated, modern monetary theory. Uh, You're I, being I, polite. That's a euphemism. <laughs> but I see her point, her being Stephanie Kelton. Yeah, Kelton's been on the show too. Yeah, I see her point when I read her book that, you know, government can conjure into being an issuer of currency can conjure into being the spending it wishes to spend uh, we see this all the time with respect to you know weapons programs you know if we want to spend the money we find the money uh, when there's an emergency uh, a flood a disaster we find the money uh, a, a Russian attack on Ukraine we find the money it's a matter of political will so if there were if there were the political will to do these things, we'd find the money. Uh, you just have to be mindful of inflation and not let the deficit get too high. But but, you know, she says that, you know, 
worry about the deficit is a big curse in our political system. And I agree with her completely about that. Uh, and, and I write in my book about how Democrats on Capitol Hill let themselves be cowed by Republicans, Republicans who run up the deficit when they have the White House because they give these big tax cuts to the rich. They run up the deficit and then Democrats get into office and Democrats want to spend some money on middle class people. And Republicans say, no, 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 you can't do that. That'll increase the deficit. And Democrats fall for it. That has to stop. What about the role of the environment, Michael, in all this? Uh, again, uh, Kate Raworth's book, Donut Economics, has been very influential. Yeah. A lot of environmentalists, and we've had them on the show, have been talking about a post-capitalist economy, an essentially post-capitalist economy, because otherwise we're going to destroy the planet. How does that play into your arguments in the middle out? A, a new effort of public investment on a vast scale absolutely has to change uh, uh, change the, the kinds of investments we make in the economy and, and particularly in the energy sector. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously move away from fossil fuels, move toward greener fuels, move toward investments that, that mitigate climate change uh, and as fast as we possibly can. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was a start along those lines, but of course, it's only a pretty small start. A lot more needs to be done. Democrats need to find a way to say uh, to the American people that no, a green economy, a green new deal isn't job killing. It's job creating. It's, it's, it's good for the economy. It will boost the economy. Now, that's not going to be true in West Virginia and a few other places. And which is you where know, you were originally from. It's, yeah, it's where I'm from. And, you know, but, you know, that it's a place where, you know, when I was a kid, there were 150,000 coal miners or so. Now there are about 10,000 still mining, though, the same amount of coal because the technology has changed. Um, <clears throat> but something has to be done for regions of the country like that uh, to say to them, you know, look, you powered our rise to great power hood. You, we beat fascism because of you. Thank you. But you can't mine coal anymore. Let's do something else. And here's $3 trillion to help you do it. Um, <clears throat> so something like that has to be factored into this. But you know, the argument has to be made that you know, green investments are economically sound investments. So capitalism can work in a green economy. I mean, even if you're on the left, you still believe in a in a capitalist future for America. I don't think that's changing anytime soon. And I don't know that I necessarily would change it. I mean, I wouldn't call myself a socialist. I mean, I, I think capitalism creates innovation and, and you know, a certain amount of competition is, is necessary in the world. Uh, capitalism also, healthy capitalism, though, also is characterized by cooperation as well as competition. People talk about that a lot less. I'd like to see Democrats talk about that, but it's really true. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't see America becoming a, a socialist uh, uh, economy anytime soon if socialism still means what it traditionally meant, uh, which is state ownership of the means of production. I, that's not gonna happen, but I think, you know, just, just a more robust government role 
in, in a more regulated state interventionist capitalist economy, I'll live happily with that. If we are to return, Michael, to progressive economics, to the kind of tax raises that someone like Zuckman is suggesting, um, do we need a new political environment? I mean, we've had Thomas Frank on the show. Again, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. The people know Michael Lind as well on class warfare. He has a new book out, The New Class War, talking about multiracial working class alliances. Is there a need to not just rethink economics, but also politics? Well, sure. And, you know, this is to get back to what you said at the beginning of the show. This is this is a the big difference, the defining difference between right-wing populism and left-wing populism. I mean, right-wing populism is, is ethno-nationalist at its core. Left-wing populism is economic, but, you know, avowedly multiracial. And that's how it has to be. And that's what we have to insist on. We have to say that our vision of this society is is that of a multiracial democracy. There's can't, can, There can be no compromise on that. And, you know, We'll win that argument. Maybe we'll lose that argument. I think over time we'll win it uh, because I think more people, you know, the people who are against that are very loud and they have a, a lying cable channel at their service uh, and so on and so on. But I don't think they're the majority of this country. I truly don't. However, they can take down democracy in the next 25 months. And, you know, we have to do everything we can to make sure that they can't do that. Uh, and uh, you know, I firmly believe, Andrew, that if we can save democracy and protect democracy, such as it is with all its terrible flaws, the Senate, the Electoral College, and so forth, maybe we'll have a chance to reform those things someday. <clears throat> Although, you know, that's very hard, but maybe we will. But if we can protect democracy and, and make sure that it still functions. I do think that in the long run, we can win this economic argument. Uh, I think that the, their, their, their arguments are running out of gas. Look at what happened with Liz Truss, uh, backtracking on that Thatcherite tax cut. The, that's, that's not popular that politics market, anymore. That was Michael, forcing her to backtrack. It wasn't public opinion. Uh, well, it was chiefly, yeah, okay, fair point. It was chiefly the market. I, I actually did see some polls that showed that it, it, it wasn't popular at all. Uh, but you're right, it was chiefly the market that forced that. But, but you know, all the better if the market reacts that way to that kind of thing. I hope that would happen in the United States the next time Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, God forbid, uh, tries to do something like that here. So first politics, then economics, and you're suggesting if we can get to 2025 without civil war, then things are becoming rosier? Uh, yes. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I won't say so uh, as if I know it, but, but I think that's very possible. I think if uh, Biden, well, you don't know if he's going to run. If a Democrat wins in 2024 and Trump and his people don't manage to steal it, and if the Democrats control Congress, then I think at that point, so those are two big ifs, I'll grant you. But if those things happen, I think at that point, the Democrats will realize that they have to get rid of the filibuster and just pass stuff and pass stuff and pass stuff. And, and then 
that stuff has to work, but I think it will. I mean, what's not to work about a $14 minimum wage? What's not to work about paid family leave? Those things will work. They'll be popular and we'll start moving in the right direction. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, important <laughs> new book, important voice, not a new voice, but a voice that's always been around. The Middle Out by Michael Tomaski, The Rise of Progressive Economics and a Return to Shared Prosperity. This is the great debate of our age. What comes after neoliberalism? Maybe it's some element of neoliberalism mixed in with new ideas. Congratulations, Michael, on the new book. What else are you reading? What, what other books would you uh, suggest to our audience? Well, I did read uh, over the summer Brad DeLong's book, which you yeah. showed. And, and very good, isn't it? Slashing, yeah, very, very good. And, uh, and you know, Gary Gersel's book uh, covers some of the same territory as mine, but in different ways, in interestingly different ways. Um, uh, those are a couple. 